Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. So if you love Ted Lasso as much as Van Damme loves Amsterdam, then join this group of four women handpicked by Beard himself and let's go. Welcome back, Greyhounds. Happy to have you back. And this time we are discussing The Prince of Tides. But before we get into that, I want to know what you lot are the prince of. Bex, what are you the prince of? Well, if anybody saw my Twitter today, I posted a little video. So I'm going to be the prince of cherry blossoms. Excellent. Give us your handle just in case anybody hasn't. At a single man tier. Love a supernatural reference. Andrea, (laughs) what are you the prince of? I'm the Prince of Pizza. Any particular kind or all of it? All, all of the of pizza. It. I was start well, I was trying to start a fight amongst the Americans, <laughs> but obviously it didn't really work. The only pizza I do not represent is is pineapple. Oh, now we can fight. Oh, now we can now we can fight. I was see I was gonna throw something in here because there was an article that was kind of controversial out of Bloomberg a couple of years ago that named Portland the best pizza city in the U.S. and I knew I could get a reaction from. I'll take you on. I will take you on, Marita. I just don't even like. I'm dubious. Well, we have deep fried pizza here, so I can't really get out. We do. Goodbye. I can't put the opinion in. We have deep fried pizza. So, Marita, what are you the prince of? Oh, uh, I'm obviously the princess of the forest. I love it. That's beautiful. <laughs> when you look at like Andrea and I living in the city, and Maria living in, in the not city, we'll just yeah. <laughs> she posts videos and I'm like, is that from a magic realm? I've never seen things like this before. Just most beautiful stuff I've ever seen. I have to say that I am the prince of the rewatch, as in rewatching shows far too much. There's no too much. There is no too much. There is no too much. So, Prince of Tides, Bex, you, as usual, have a summary for us and an introduction to where it came in in Ted Lasso. Yes, and as per usual, I get my summary of the book off of the back cover (laughs) because (laughs) I'm not very creative here. So, this is from the back of the paperback edition that I read. Pat Conroy has created a huge, brash thunderstorm of a novel. Ooh, thunderstorm. Hmm stinging with honesty and resounding with drama spanning 40 years this is the story of turbulent tom wingo his gifted and troubled twin sister savannah and their struggle to triumph over the dark and tragic legacy of the extraordinary family into which they were born filled with the vanishing beauty of the south carolina low country as well as the dusty glitter of new york city the prince of tides is pat conroy at his best the only part of that i take offense to is the dusty <laughs> glitter of New York City. <laughs> I was just about to say as well, bingo, bingo. <laughs> I love it. No, but to be fair, I mean, he is looking at New York uh, in like the 80s, and that's a very different New York than what we have today. So where does Prince of Tides come up in Ted Lasso? Season two, episode two, Lavender. After Ted learns that Dr. Sharon Fieldstone would be around for the remainder of the season, he goes to welcome her in her office in what she calls a disarming approach, even offering her Rebecca's biscuits. Not even her own. He brings her Rebecca's biscuits. (laughs) Hella rude. 
as well and he makes like a whole batch like what the heck <laughs> we've seen him cooking these as to, part to be fair he didn't know she was coming back till that till he was already at work so we can't forget but he could have at least just given one of the biscuits to right or not put the one he put she took a bite out of back in the box <laughs> but what would rebecca have said to him if sharon kept them and then he walked into rebecca's office she would have been like Go home. So as part of Ted getting to know Dr. Sharon, he asks her what her favorite book is. Her response to this question is, this is interesting. And Ted asks, what is that? My answer is the fountainhead. (laughs) You know, Mm. Dr. Sharon then (laughs) calls him out on using this disarming approach to connecting with new people. It isn't until after practice or excuse me, training is over, that the two have a chance to speak about her observations of the team. After praising the team atmosphere, Ted asks if they have an if it ain't broke, don't fix it situation. And Sharon responds with, that depends. Does everyone agree that being winless with eight straight draws ain't broke? After a bit more conversation, she reveals that Prince of Tides is her favorite book before riding off on her bike for the night. So, I mean, clearly we all see the connection, right, between Prince of Tides and Lasso is that Ted clearly has an affair with Dr. Sharon, right? Like, we all agree, <laughs> and we don't even have to do this whole podcast, right? Like, we're it's over. It's done. It's done. And we don't even have to keep watching the show because we know how it ends. <laughs> you know, it's actually kind of interesting because I hope and pray that the Fountainhead that Ted mentioned as his favorite book, and we'll get to it eventually, but I... I'm gleeful every time they mention a new book because it puts the fountainhead that much further away. But anyway, I just assume that is a one-off joke that is so out of character that that's why it's funny. I assume that's its place there. And initially I had made the assumption that the Prince of Tides was also just a one-off joke because of the therapist having an inappropriate relationship with the uh, brother of his patient, which is still, you know, pushing an ethical boundary. Excuse me, the brother of her patient. Yeah. Um, but having having read the book, there's a lot more to that. And I think we're all going to dive into this as we go. So who's first up, Bex? I am. I am. And I want to throw out a couple of trigger warnings, at least for my section, but possibly for other sections as well. There'll probably be some discussion of sexual assault and rape uh, and attempted suicide. So heads up. Okay, so I want to talk about a parent's role, both in the book and in the show. And I'm going to start out with a couple of quotes, one from each. So early on in The Prince of Tides, Tom tells his daughters that there is one important rule of life to follow. He says, never listen to what your parents say. Parents were put on earth for the sole purpose of making their children miserable. It is one of God's most important laws. Both mama and I are screwing you up. If we knew how we were doing it, we would stop because we adore you. But we're parents and we can't help it. We are your enemies. I don't do a Southern accent, so y'all just going to have to, like, deal with that. <laughs> so you said that, and then went straight into a y'all, so I love I that. <laughs> this is about where I should have went bingo, bingo. <laughs> just throw a bingo, wingo in as often as you can. <laughs> so then I have a quote from Ted Lasso, and this is actually from season two, episode six, The Signal. And this is when Rebecca tells Ted that he's going to have lunch with her and her mother, Deborah. Deborah leans out the window and shares her philosophy on life with the team. She says, the name's not Rebecca's mom. It's Deborah. 
I'm a work in progress, a voracious book on tape listener, and a staunch believer that if you get dealt lemons in life, then you should make lemon lavender mojitos. I guess that ties back to the episode two lavender. Well, and I'm actually just hearing you say that Deborah describing herself as a work in progress reminded me that Ted just described himself as a work in prog mess to Rebecca. That's true. That is true. But that's not the part of the quote that I want to like focus on from this scene, right? What I'm more concerned with is Ted's reaction to this interaction. Ted tells Beard, boy, I love meeting people's moms. It's like reading an instruction manual as to why they're nuts. <laughs> so those two quotes, right? The the one about parents being your enemy and uh, instruction manual for being nuts. I want to look at the role that the mothers in particular play in Prince of Tides and Ted Lasso, because we talk about fathers a lot with Ted Lasso. That is a very clear theme, but I think mothers are also important here. You know, um, I know we haven't met Ted's mother yet, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the rumor has it that this season we could be meeting her. She has been cast. She has been cast, right? So it might be interesting to reconsider her after we meet her as well. But as of recording this episode, we have not. The only insight we get in this moment is actually to Beard's mother. After Ted says that line and Beard yells, let's go. (laughs) Like a madman almost. (laughs) And Ted asks, by the way, how is Mrs. Beard? Followed by Beard's response of full-blown QAnon. Bebe. So for today, I'm going to be focusing on Rebecca's mother, Deborah, and Tom, Savannah, and Luke's mother, Lila, based on three themes, power, secrets, and trauma. So first up, power. Both women hold a degree of power over their children. This manifests differently in each of them, but has a similar effect on how their children perceive them. So Lila would pit her children against one another. Right. There's one story that Tom recounts where he learned that his mother had pulled each of the three children aside and basically told them that they were her favorite and the only one she could trust. This just seemed like a, you know, a narcissistic attempt to pit them against one another and have them love her the most. Right. That that's that's all I could read that as. Now, Rebecca is an only child, so there's not that same pinning siblings against one another with Deborah, but what she does instead is just like repeatedly show up unannounced, at at least according to Rebecca. And we see her show up twice, but she claims each time that she's leaving Paul, her husband, for whatever reason. Uh, Although she never mentions the affairs and he apparently had been having them throughout their marriage. And then this whole thing of her showing up at Rebecca's would last until Rebecca would make her feel better. And then Paul would buy her something nice and, then she would go home, right? It's it's still manipulative. It's just manipulative in a different way. So next up is secrets. When it comes to keeping secrets, both Deborah and Lila hold on to massive secrets that affect their children for decades. In fact, I would argue that their children continue to be affected by these secrets even after the truth is revealed, right? Or even after they acknowledge the truth. Agreed. Lila, you know, and this is where the trigger warning comes into effect. I'm not going to be graphic about this, but it, I have to discuss it because it is directly uh, related to the Wingo family secret here. 
so basically the scene is after Lila, Savannah, and Tom, they're at home. Luke is away. The father is like gone shrimping, like probably in Florida at that point. I don't know. But he's away away. The three of them are actually raped by the escaped prisoners from an earlier childhood story, but we won't get into that. The three of them and Luke end up killing these men, but Lila refuses to call the police. She says that it'll bring shame on the family because, you know, blame the women, right? And that they should never speak of it again. She swears her children to secrecy to the point where Savannah seemingly even blocks it from her memory. Like, there, there's part of that repressing it from her own trauma, but there is also the fact that, like, nobody is addressing this, so it, it makes it easier for her to repress this trauma. And the four of them, they... They don't discuss it again, but it does show up in Savannah's short story that she writes. You know, there's definitely... Oh, in her children's book, yes. Yes, her children's book. So, like, this is such a secret, they don't even mention it to the father when he gets back from his shrimping trip, right? So all four of them are forced to carry this secret, and they never even acknowledge it to one another, which absolutely 110% affects the way that they engage with the world. It, it absolutely does. And the interesting thing, and I think the thing that that sort of makes this complex is, you know, it, it has absolutely screwed the kids up to not acknowledge that and especially to make it about loyalty. But at the same time, any woman's experience with the world tells you that Lila wasn't altogether wrong, that it would alter how people saw mm -hmm. it and treated her. That's I mean, true. There is, even in well-intentioned people, even in people who help, and I think anyone who's been through a horrible situation where they needed help has encountered people who were you know, willing to do what needed to be done. But at the same time, there's victim blaming that goes on even with well-intentioned people. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, I she yeah. damaged her kids by so much by doing that, but it, she wasn't delusional in what the impact would be no. if they had been open. No. So I did the movie and the spark and cliff notes to catch up on this one which is perfectly fine if you're listening and that's how you engage with a book so they are and I'm a host but yeah I think what Marie is saying there about victim blaming is that in the movie Tom Tom takes on a sort of certain blame that he couldn't protect the women but he mm. was was he raped in the book yes yes so that's I wasn't sure if that was just something for the movie but he was also raped um, as well as the women, but not only did he have the rape to deal with, but the fact that he thought he should have been able to protect the women as well. So that 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 side of victim blaming probably would have happened if that had got out. Mm -hmm. Not that keeping it a secret is the answer, but yeah, well, absolutely. Well, that's a great point. Like the masculinity, right? Like, well, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't take them down, and you know, that kind of BS. It's the South, yeah, it's the South, isn't it? So even masculinity there, and the number of people who are so convinced they would be a hero in any desperate situation that they don't have any concept of how they would actually react in the same circumstances. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the situation with Deborah and Rebecca is going to be a little bit different here because there is not that trauma of the, the sexual assault, but there is still something that is this, this deep family secret, right? And the big secret in the Welton family is that Paul, Rebecca's father and Deborah's husband, at least according to Rebecca's knowledge, had an affair. Now, we we find out from Deborah that it was, in fact, multiple affairs, but, you know, Rebecca only knew of this one instance. 
What's different here is that the two women are keeping this secret from one another, right? They don't know the other one knows. And it's like they're trying to protect the other one from the secret in a sense. You know, Rebecca's been carrying it for 30 years and and who knows how long Deborah's been carrying it. You know, similar to Lila, I think a big part of why Deborah didn't leave Paul was because of the social stigmas around doing so, right? Lila didn't want to call the police and didn't want to deal with that because she knew what how society would look at her and how they would judge her. And I think that's a big part of Deborah's situation. I mean, she she does say once I love someone, I love them forever. But like that's also you can still love someone and not be their their partner, right? Not. Uh, stay committed to them through marriage. And I think for her, it was easier to pretend that it wasn't an issue than deal with it head on, right? Like pretend it's not there and maybe it'll go away. And uh, that probably ties into some of the things you all might talk about later on as well. But that brings me to my third point, which is the trauma. And, you know, I think the trauma experienced by both the mothers and the children in these instances continues to be carried with them. Without taking the time to process these traumas with a therapist, as is the case for all of them, but Savannah, and then eventually Tom, they continue to carry them and not recognize the ways in which the traumas affected their lives. Like they know they did, but they can't really like articulate it or or recognize it fully. And no, I'm sorry, going to the psychic does not count. (laughs) My humble opinion. (laughs) I get it. So for Lila, I think it's her manipulation and secret keeping was what was traumatic on all of her children, but in different ways. So Savannah made various attempts to take her life over the years and later took off and cut ties with her family. Luke carried the shame of not being able to stop the men that day. And I think this played a, a role in how hard he fought for saving his town from the government, which was something that eventually took his life. And Tom, while he tried to leave a quote-unquote normal life, he struggled with his romantic relationship with his wife, Sally. And and he, like, weirdly overcompensated with his children. Like, weirdly. <laughs> like, weirdly. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was, I was just like, what is happening here? But I do think that that this overcompensation stemmed from the trauma, right? And he did this, all of this, until he was forced to leave to help his sister in New York. And I think that's similar to Ted in a way where he, like, couldn't deal with his situation until he left the situation. And I think the reason that Lila carried the trauma instead of processing it is because of this, again, the societal expectations and traumas that she herself had already faced. I mean, as we know from the book, the man who, who like led the, th- the the other two prisoners to the house was a man that knew them when they lived in Georgia and that had basically been stalking her. So there's like a lot of trauma in that as well. And in terms of Deborah, her inability to address her husband's cheating, like this has clearly influenced Rebecca's relationships with men. It's one of the main reasons she was able to muster the strength to leave Rupert when she found out about his affairs. And while some people will repeat the sins of their parents, others like overcompensate and go to the other extreme. Not that I'm saying that leaving Rupert was extreme. It was right and it was healthy, even if it was hard. 
But where Rebecca saw her mother as a victim, she herself refused to be that victim. Right. But then we look at her relationship, albeit brief, with John Wings Knight and even with Sam, and we can see that she's still not prioritizing herself and her needs. With John, he's just fine. You know, he's safe, he's not a risk, but he's not amazing for her either. And with Sam, he is amazing. Yes, I know I'm biased, but <laughs> but still Rebecca recognizes that she's just hiding behind his amazingness and not focusing on what she needs to focus on to figure out about herself on her own. So by not addressing their traumas, by not discussing them, by not processing them, the traumas that the mothers experience were passed on to their children. And with Savannah, Tom, and especially Rebecca, we see attempts to deal with these traumas. Uh, you know, they all vary in their degrees of success, and they're all still a work in progress or prog mess by the end, you know, or at least by the end of the content that we have so far, because like Ted Lasso's not over yet. We still have six more episodes to go at least, but they are trying. Only six. Oh, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard that say that out loud. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they are they are at least still trying, right? So it's not it's not solving the traumas, but it's recognizing them, acknowledging them, and trying to move forward after even having experienced them. So I know this is kind of like the most like psychological <laughs> that I've gone in any of my analysis, but uh I think this section resonated with me quite a bit, even if I didn't love the book. <laughs> it's a book about therapy, so well. Mostly about therapy, so we can yeah. we can let you. Yeah, help. I mean, I, I'm gonna say like, you know, Dre, you were talking about clearly this means Ted and Doctor Sharon are gonna have an affair, but like, it did make me wonder, and and kind of go into what Marita said about like, you know, maybe just being a one-off joke, kind of like uh, with Ted's choice. I was like, why would this be? her favorite book. And the only thing I could come up with was that it was chock full of case studies. It's like, ooh, I could do a psychoanalysis on each of these characters. Because <laughs> it deals, I mean, it definitely deals with problematic, toxic, and or complicated relationships between parents and children, which is a theme we see in Ted Lasso. Or, you know, as you mentioned, maybe she was just messing with Ted because of his answer. Like, I don't know, but to me, this just seems like yet another dated title chosen by a largely Gen X writer's room. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. I just kind of was hoping, because, I mean, the one thing about, like, the whole story is, Lowenstein, she really does fight for Savannah. And maybe that Dr. Sharon can sort of relate to that as really giving a shit about her patients, which she said to Ted, itself, just because I'm getting paid, why should that mean I don't care? So, but I think it's more probably to do with the latter of what you said, to be honest. Well, on on top of that, I mean, I think it's worth, and I will discuss this at greater length in, in my section later on, but it's worth mentioning that, you know, Dr. Sharon is a therapist in a really specific set of circumstances because she works with athletes and coaches. And there is something very specific about this book because what she is functionally doing, even though he's not her patient, is helping him get his way back to finding the the joy in and the ability to coach and teach. And I think there would probably be something in that that would resonate with her. Ooh, I can't wait for it. Hi, Greyhounds. If you'd like to join in in the conversation, tweet us at Beards Book Club 
or email us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now back to the podcast. Andrea, you're you're next. Yeah. Look at me getting the order right. Hmm? Woohoo! <laughs> I am next, and I think that was very well um well very well explained thank you bex that was great section but the um the fact that you put me right after you i think was perfect (laughs) i'm so organized (laughs) we're so look at us look at us being a real podcast okay so i all jokes aside earlier about dr sharon and ted that is not my what my section is about um i just had to make that joke um and i do actually think just a side note from what the ending of yours bex like I do think that there is something there. Like, I think she doesn't, isn't it even the way that she says it? And I think you read it, but even the way she says that it's Prince of Tides, she kind of like knows she's like, she's like Prince of Tides, kind of like, you know, you know that there's something off there. So I agree. Like, taking the piss, right? I was just going to say, there's that that tone of taking the piss, definitely. Um, And I think there is probably something there about just like, yeah, like, what a book full of examples of, right? Like, or she could have followed it up with, do you have a brother? <laughs> I was taking a drink there. <laughs> All that right. would have been amazing. That been good. I am also in the camp that this was a difficult book to read. I struggled with it. And I found I was, you know, I was dealing with some personal stuff while I was reading this. And even without, like, I just like, it was almost like, almost kind of like, like, oh, I have to read this book. And like, like being able to put myself in the mindset at times was difficult to get through it. But there were great parts in it, right? Like, like there there were parts as I was reading it that I was just like, oh, this is, you know, well-written. Like I like the, you know, the things happening and the dialogue and some of the way that they built up certain scenes and characters and situations was well-written and interesting, but it was just, it was a complicated topic. For many reasons. Um, so my section is a little bit more kind of about, you know, um, relationships, family, and f- focusing kind of on the relationships and how lies and ignoring things, ignoring talking about things ruins, can ruin those relationships. Um, and there are many examples of this in the book. I mean, from the very beginning, you know, Tom and Sally are talking to each other, like, you know, because he's about to leave for New York. And not it's not right in the beginning, but just like when he's talking and they're about to leave for New York. And he's, you know, it's like they, at that moment, both of them are finally honest with each other and they haven't been for months and it's already decayed. She's already having an affair and he's been going through all this trauma that time and never at any point mentioned it. Right. So it's like the destruction of this relationship you can see has been going on for months. And a lot of it was just based on like, can we just talk to each other? And I do know that there is many cultures, but definitely in the South where there's a lot of things about like keeping things within the family, but like people say that, right? Like we don't talk about our family outside of our family, but then people don't even in the South don't even talk within their own families. Like, <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of examples of it. So I kind of just really want to focus that just because yeah, that the book just kind of left me. Meh. I'm just going to kind of talk about Ted for a while. <laughs> My favorite subject. Fair enough. Yeah. So like, as the seasons have progressed, I think Ted's Ted's journey with his vulnerability, we've seen Ted's journey with his vulnerability, right? When the show starts, I think there's this, there's this like endearing, endearing quality of Ted's methods that are so different and make such a quick impact on the team. And we're all excited and kind of in love with his, you know, with all of some of his, you know, his little sayings and the things he does. But I feel like we start to see that decay in season two 
And now in season three, we're starting to see a little bit of that journey of like, okay, almost kind of like I screwed up last year. I'm, I'm trying to heal myself. Let me make some, let me make some new overtures to people, which is great to see. It makes me very happy. And so he makes comments at moments about like, you know, kind of ignoring the problems and smile and move on, like just smile and move on. It'll all work itself out. Be a goldfish. Be a goldfish. Right. I think, you know, the problem with all of that is that it works great in sports. It doesn't work in your relationships, right? Like the idea of like, yeah, like, Okay, so you got kicked in the head, right? Like pick yourself. I mean, that's a bad example. I shouldn't say kicked in the head. <laughs> Let's use Sam, right? When Sam, like he gets kind of pushed aside by Jamie and falls, right? And he's angry. And like the the feedback, you know, the the feedback from Ted in that moment is like, you know, like brush it off, let it go, be a goldfish. Like, and again, that's great for team sports. Like, yeah, don't dwell on the fact that you missed the kick that you, you know, that the guy pushed you aside or whatever, whatever problem happened in a game, the goldfish scenario is wonderful. But like, if something, you know, if like you get into an argument with your, you know, I'll just say, get into an argument with your brother and you say something, you you say something kind of mean to him. And then you just say, well, you know, just brush it off, be a goldfish, let it go. But then that keeps happening or there's more examples of it, or there's things that come up between you and your brother over the years that like remind him of that what you said about him 15, 20 years later, you've got this chasm between these two people. Less of a goldfish, more of a piranha. Right. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So I don't think it's immediately apparent when we first meet Michelle, but this is clearly, I think the thing that's eating her up. You know, I think we've, we've even had, we even had a couple right? like she came on this, she came to visit and we saw some of it there and her crying and, the thing about the distance that they wanted to put between each other, which again, felt like, you know, is distance really the thing to do? How are you working on yourselves? But even in the text message, when Ted has the panic attack and Michelle texts him, are you okay? And he makes a joke and her response that I didn't, I didn't have a chance to look at it, but right, she's kind of like, okay, you're clearly being Ted. You're yeah, clearly you're Ted, right? Instead of being like, yeah, that really sucks. You know, like just being honest in the moment. And that's all she's looking for. I also think we see the examples of how it eats up his relationship with Nate. I think even how it eats up his relationship with Sam in some parts. I mean, I don't feel like there's a problem between Ted and Sam, but like things like they're talking about Jamie, Sam is telling him, I do not want Jamie to come back. And then Jamie's there, right? Like I think Ted, Ted and Sam have worked that out, but at the same time, like, you know, Ted could have told Sam, like, hey, you know what? Like, like he should have told him. Communication. It's such a wonderful thing. <laughs> so here in season three, I think we're starting to see the growth of Ted opening up, right? The Zoom call with Michelle was so nice. And I think it's a little bit of, I'm going to, I'm going to get in a sl- small soapbox. It's a little soapbox. I'm only five feet tall. My soapbox is only like a half foot. I'll help you out. I will yeah. help you onto that soapbox. <laughs> And Marita and I will still be looking down. <laughs> oh, cold. Oh, see, there, see, that was sad. Now we're going to grow an animosity between these. <laughs> be a goldfish, Andrea. Be a goldfish. I love you. <laughs> so the Zoom call, with, I was saying, so I know people are kind of overthinking every single scene and the relationships in this show. And I wish, I wish there was a little bit more of the Tedism of like, Let's all just wait and see how this whole thing plays out. 
and don't look at every damn scene as a sign. <clears throat> Ted and Michelle are getting back. You know, hot Dutch dude and, and Rebecca and all this stuff. There's all these signs and people are just jumping on them. And I think the thing with the Zoom call that was so beautiful, and I think it's being pushed aside with people worrying about whether or not Ted and Michelle are going to end up together at the end is how amazing that was and why Michelle was crying at the end was because that was the most vulnerable Ted has ever been to her, probably in their entire relationship. I, so again, I don't see that scene as Michelle and Ted coming back together, but just this moment of vulnerability that brought them closer. And I think that's really important to understand that just because they had a vulnerable moment, and I think this is the other thing, we automatically think there's a romantic relationship there because they're being vulnerable with each other. Friends can be vulnerable to each other and has nothing to do with relationship and romance. Um, and I think even, you know, the hot Dutch guy, hot Dutch guy, uh, <laughs> you know, doesn't being have nice a name. <laughs> that is accurate. And that's intentional. If you ask me that he doesn't have a name. He was hot and he was Dutch and he was a guy. Um, <laughs> Listen, I, I would throw myself a, can a canal if he was pulling me out. He like didn't said, pull her out though. He just let her get out. <laughs> Well, it cut away. We can, we can always I'm just imagine. <laughs> yeah, he's not my usual, you know, interest of guy, but I'm on board for that. Nice pun. Nice pun. You're on board that boat. Houseboat. Gezellig. Well, how do you say that word? Gezellig? Gezellig, is it? Gezellig. Sorry to all our Dutch listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, I think that set, again, that set people off. But like, I think that, that, you know, that meeting, that conversation, all of that was a moment of vulnerability for Rebecca that she also does not normally have. She doesn't let herself open up like that. Like just even the way she was dressed, right? Like we're so used to Rebecca, so coiffed, right? Perfect clothes. And here she is in this like flowing gown with her hair down. It was all messy. Like she was beautiful and vulnerable and mm -hmm. like i think that you know that i don't think we should just discount those reaction those uh i'm saying our reactions we shouldn't we shouldn't discount those interactions as only being romantic they can be other kinds of relationships and they can be learning and just when when we're vulnerable we're listening too and so you know so again kind of go back to michelle for a second i think all michelle ever wanted was honesty from him when she had that, that's the emotion that we saw. And I think as, as Ted and Rebecca are both learning to be more vulnerable, we'll see where that goes. Right. I don't, you know, not tying it to any kind of relationship here, just saying both of them needed more of that in their lives and they're both getting it. So like, I'm, I'm excited to see where all of that goes. And then um, I did just want to also touch on Nate then I think, right. I think Nate was dealing with a lot of other stuff. Right. And he's never talked to his parents really. Although the, honestly, the glimpses of Nate and his mom, like when he called his mom to test asking that girl out, that was just the cutest thing. And then he was like, how did adorable. I do mom? Like that was adorable. <laughs> And now he was like, okay, love you, bye. I was like, that is so I cute. Know, it was almost cute. like when Will was like, this this last episode, um, which was the Amsterdam episode, and Will's at the end and he gets interrupted by Beard. <laughs> oh, he goes, sorry, mum, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, and this nice couple over to have a threesome with me. And I was like, I fucking love this show. Like, the <laughs> it's just so brilliant. Well, yeah, and, as, and especially when you get that glimpse of part of the reason Nate is so hostile and 
and horrible to Will is he sees how much Will is him, um, mm-hmm. how much they have in common, how similar yeah. they are. Well, that's yeah. so loathing just plunked right down onto somebody else. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and Nate um, carries a ton of animosity towards Ted in season two about what he's not, what he thinks he's not seeing for him. And I think Ted, I, Ted was obviously also kind of dealing with a lot of stuff and opening up all of his traumas and things. You know, that was unfair. Like Nate never asked Ted either, right? Like Ted kind of blamed him, like you ignored me. But Nate also never came to him and said, hey, Ted, what's going on here? Like what, you know? Mm-hmm. our relationship's different what's happening so that all blew up that's kind of all the things that i really wrote and i just kind of want to say in conclusion you know i think relationships are like I, i'm talking here about the thing the hints we see in ted lasso about how this stuff isn't working and how and i and the journey of it over the three seasons of ted's you know his different uh take on all of this and his learning experience but not all relationships are going to be fixed just with like one conversation and stuff. Things are way more complicated than that. And like, I mean, I think maybe Nate and his dad are probably a great one. Like there's a lot happening between Nate and his dad. That's going to take a lot to work through. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, um, I think well, some aren't fixable, you know, and that's, that's a- yeah. It makes me think of Savannah's relationship with her mother. Like that's not going to uh-huh. be just repaired. Right. And it's not in the book and and you don't like expect that going forward it will be whereas with tom you might see like okay he can maybe open some communication different like with his wife you know he he does try and like they try and patch things up um, but also like opening up like hey mom i'm gonna tell this story like this is what's happening right and i'm just gonna do it i thought you should know but it's not gonna you're not gonna be able to stop me from doing it but savannah's not in that place she's not in a place where she could she could open up communication with her mother and that's okay too right i I don't i don't see nate and his father's relationship being patched up by the end of the show like, I think there's too many years of trauma. They might open a door. Yeah. But it certainly won't be, like, tied up with a pretty bow. Or I, I don't think it will be tied up with a pretty bow. <laughs> I agree. And in the same way, you know, Savannah's relationship with her mother and Nate's relationship with her father, even even if the child wanted to patch that up, it would require a good faith effort on the part of the parent that I don't think we have any evidence to say would happen. On no. either part, exactly. That's great. Great point. Yeah. And thank you for tying it to the book. I know I kind of like just focus fully on Ted here. I didn't bring up the book. So thank you for giving me that little. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Greyhounds. A small break in proceedings to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club and Instagram at Coach Beards Book Club. Thanks for listening. Back to the podcast. And that is it for me. So I think up next we have Michaela. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> she said, look at me remembering the order and then she forgets her spot. And then, the I'm, order. And then I'm like, where's my fucking <laughs> I was waiting to see if she got it. If she clicked. Yeah, it's me. Why does that? Amario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be talking about the courage to grieve for both Prince of Tides and Ted Lasso because I saw a lot of overlap. So while trying to help his sister Savannah, it turns out Tom has suffered the same trauma. That being the home invasion and the rape that his whole family endured, along with the added sort of southern expectations that as a boy he should be able to protect his his uh, female 
family members. Yet unlike Savannah, who suffers psychological issues, Tom has relied on his ingrained Southern traditions to avoid his own grief. So by ingrained Southern traditions, I mean like by deflecting things with humour and like, I think it was Marita said earlier, no, it was Andrea, sorry. I think it was like Andrea said earlier, this is the South, we don't talk about this with, you know, outside the family. So that's, that's his deflection techniques. He's unable to show his wife, Sally, that he he has love for her in a sincere way and only does so through humour. When they discuss this over the phone, Tom is only able to tell her he loves her once he's hung the phone up. It seems that the issues that Tom is having with Sally are caused by the unstable relationship that he has with his mother uh, and also the trauma that they've all endured. I I, I bring this up, and it was brought up earlier, that when Lila told Tom he was her favourite and she loved him the most, and then Tom later realised that she told Luke and Savannah the same thing. That has really got to undermine whatever relationship you had with your mother, that undermines it, whether it's later in life or whenever you find out, you then probably start to question everything that you thought you had with her. In chapter five of the article, where parallel lives meet, the Prince of Tides, and grieving as a teacher's curriculum, Edward Podsiadlik states that the avoidance of grief can be a constant drain on a person. And I'm going to quote him. He says, its, and its impact can sometimes be palpable. What previously inspired or motivated an individual can lose its meaning. A person's sense of tranquility can turn into a kind of perpetual restlessness. And even relationships with loved ones can start to no longer feel right. So... Tom has not learned how to express his love in a way that will maintain a healthy relationship. The outcome is that he's merely existing in his life instead of partaking in it. The trauma of the rape and the unhealthy relationship with Lila has resulted in him denying his grief and he deflects the positive emotions in his life, like that of the relationship with his wife and the love of his coaching job. So it sounds a bit like somebody we know. Like Tom, Ted avoids facing his trauma by trying to control the well-being of those around him and deflects conflict with humour. Lord Edgar Cheesington III being a prime example of his pitch-side conversation with Dr (laughs) Sharon in the previous episode to Lavender. His toxic pox positivity breaks down the relationship with his wife and results in an anxiety disorder. In both Ted Lasso and The Prince of Tides, there is a theme of avoidance of grief. Looking at the episode Lavender, episode two of season two, there are multiple characters who would benefit from acknowledging their grief and trauma. Starting with Beard, who's in a toxic relationship with Jane, who in this episode threw his keys in the river after a fight, but yet to this day, Beard is still with her and refuses to acknowledge that that relationship is hurting him. Nate bullies Will and doesn't even see what he's doing. When discussing whether Jamie should return to Richmond, Nate says he would it would lower team morale to have someone around who belittles everyone, yet straight away has a go at Will for something minor. And instead of facing his emotions regarding the awful relationship he has with his father, Nate is paying that bad behaviour forward. Like Tom, he's not only hurting himself, but he's hurting those around him. Roy is avoiding Richmond because he can't handle not playing football anymore. He won't even stop to say hello to Ted and speeds away in his G-Wagon while Ted's riding on a lawnmower. Uh, He won't show his vulnerability to Keely, but with her encouragement, he tries the pundit gig, which eventually shows him he wants to coach at Richmond later in the series in the episode Rainbow. He acknowledges that, like Dr Lowenstein did for Tom, Keely helped him to help himself. 
Ted can't handle Dr. Sharon being there in this episode. It, it means he'll have to face his feelings and, and it means he has to admit he may not be as pivotal to the team without her. He's visibly irritated by her presence at training, saying that it feels like she's getting closer every time he turns around. Which is, it does happen, right? I it is, it is actually that. true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a great, yeah. great gag. Didn't want to gaslight him at all, but I did. I was going to say, am I imagining that? Or was it that she did? She did. No, yeah, she like, she's did. brilliant, yeah. So basically, she, he's upset that she's not responding to his disarming tactics of getting to know her, which is his only defence mechanism. Um, if he doesn't have that, then he doesn't have anything in communicating with people. The two characters that address their emotions in the episode are actually Jamie and Sam. Jamie sabotages his own career to piss off his dad by abandoning Man City to go on a reality TV show. But when he's booted from the show, he acknowledges to Ted that he's depressed. Yeah, takes him a sort of scale of, yeah, I'm fine, to actually it's all shit. But he gets there in the end. He asks for exactly what he wants. He wants to go back to Richmond. And this, this is the point, I think, I don't know, I want to see if you agree. Is this the point where we see a turnaround for Jamie? Is this the point in the story where Jamie has reached the peak of his arseholishness? I, I think it's, yeah, I do think it's a turning point. He still hasn't got a sense of how to do that because, you know, after that he'll come back and try to buy everyone a PlayStation and buy everyone's love. But it is, I think, where his intentions change. He's, yeah, his heart's in the right place, yeah. I think that's the, the beginning of the turning point, but where the turn becomes complete is that scene in the locker room at Man City when Roy hugs him. I think that's, yeah. that's like Jamie's now done like the 180 that he mm -hmm. he needs. He's he's kind of, you know, he's still a work in progress, progress, whatever. <laughs> but I do think that's the point where he's like, okay, now this is my home. Like none of these people turned on me. They were all here. They all saw what happened and no one said shit to me. Yeah. No right? one made fun of me for showing my emotions, showing my true self. Yeah. yeah good point. Cause I th I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I would have automatically jumped to do the rightest thing where he stood up for Sam and, but you're right. It's not, He'd stood up for Sam and the team started to accept him, but he still hadn't shown his true self to them at that point. He, you know, it wasn't until he showed his emotions with his dad. So, yeah, good catch. With Sam, he is hurt that Ted would bring Jamie back to Richmond without even talking to the team, under the impression at this point that, that Ted is bringing Jamie back when he actually isn't. <laughs> um, he's, he's refused Jamie at this point. But he states that how Jamie made him feel was awful, the worse than anybody's ever made him feel before. And he thinks the team is in a better place emotionally without Jamie. So, uh, yeah, he got a bit mad and he, he swore and he regretted it. And he always regrets it when he swears, but it's kind of cute. It's really cute. It's like when a toddler swears and you're not supposed to laugh. It's so precious. <laughs> it's so precious. because And then that he really played that awkward bit. You know, when you have a go at somebody and it turns out you were wrong and you've got to eat your words. And you're, he physically showed what that feels like to me, the cringe that you get when you've, like, fucked up. Um, but, yeah, so he didn't he didn't do it in the best possible way, but he did it. He, he straight away acknowledged his feelings and he brought them up to Ted and they were dealt with. So Jamie and Sam are probably out of, in the episode Lavender, are the only ones that face their feelings, their emotions, their grief and their situations head on. Both The Prince of Tides and Ted Lasso show examples of the negative consequences of avoiding grief. And I think when Dr. Sharon said that Prince of Tides is her favourite book, she knew exactly what she was doing. 
she's trying to get Ted to engage with his, his grief. And while I agree that it is probably just her tongue-in-cheek way of having a bit of a laugh with them, she knows the main themes within the book are you can't just ignore things and they'll go away. You can't just use a southern sense of humour and a, a sort of excuse to look after everybody else to hide your own feelings. Got one last paper that I, I saw an excellent quote from, and it's in A Psychodynamic Interpretation of the Movie, Prince of Tights. Beth Bramble claims, once Tom took the necessary risk to engage in these relationships, he had begun his journey towards finding his true self, a self that had more strengths and effective coping strategies that he'd previously imagined. Tom's psychic structure was changed and his unconscious conflict was resolved. This provided the necessary bridge to re-establishing a more healthy, intimate relationship with his wife and family and to resume his career as a coach. So... When he was finally able to grieve, the things that were causing him the problems actually resolved themselves, you know. And I think that given, and we've not finished yet, but I think we can all see that Ted is is going in that direction. He's heading in the same direction. He's dropping the defence mechanisms. mechanisms. He's learning to cope with his anxiety disorder, which unfortunately, you know, won't be one of these things that just disappears once all the other, you know, an anxiety disorder is sometimes lifelong even though you fixed the root cause of it but I think like Tom Ted is moving in the right direction and that's a lot to do with Dr Sharon does anybody have any thoughts no well I was just thinking about your your thoughts on it being Dr Sharon's book choice and because it's funny to me like thinking of this you know British woman (laughs) being like, yeah, Prince of Tides is my favorite book, <laughs> is like that alone is already funny. But I, I think you're right, because I I think of Ted being like, oh, what's your favorite book? And then he's the kind of person who's like, I'm going to go read that book to oh, like, get to know people, absolutely. right? And I think Dr. Sharon picks up on that. And and so, you know. And not just read it. But... Yeah, like, but analyze them at, through their book choice. Well, no, I don't mean that. I mean, like, not just read it, but, like, read it before the next time you see that person. That's the dude he is. He's the Good dude who yeah. at night. Yeah. How would you manage that? I didn't even manage to read it at all. The damn thing is 687? Yeah. 679 pages in this version. <laughs> uh, yeah, but maybe he went and watched the movie. That's a really good point, though. That is a really good point because she had Ted's number within not that long of meeting him. So, yeah, she probably knew he would be the type of person to go away and read a book to get to know somebody better. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, maybe that was part of her trying to get him along on his own journey. (laughs) Question for you, Michaela Was the movie, did the movie use derogatory racial language? No, thankfully not. It's kind of skipped ahead it it, it cut out a lot of the start from what i understand and then he antagonized her in different ways he didn't antagonize her with the use of racial slurs there was nothing to do with that it was more i'm trying to think of the ways that he did antagonize her i think was just just by his attitude towards her like he wouldn't ever sit down when he was talking to her he sort of stood up and spoke Oh, you mean like Ted trying to find a seat when he goes for his first therapy? There you go. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. But no, there was none of that because I was, I was kind of like, because there's one thing reading those words, there's another thing hearing them. There's just it's viscerally painful. Yeah, Um, and I was was not looking forward to it. But no, there was none of there was none of that. Um, and 
the movie, thank goodness. I, I didn't know that that movie was directed by Barbara Streisand. The yeah. one thing the I movie did focus on more so than the book was the relationship between Lowenstein and, and Tom. It's that that was the sort of focal point of the um, third act of the movie. Whereas I, under, from understand from reading the cliff notes, that it wasn't actually as big a part in the book as it was in the movie. It was there was less flashbacks in the movie than there was in the book. Mm. Okay, good to know. Lots of flashbacks in the book. It was like every other chapter, <laughs> or even sometimes within the chapter. There was a tiger in the movie, but I saw when you were talking about it in the group chat, there was a lot more to the tiger in the book than there was in the movie. Mm. <laughs> because I was like, I thought this tiger escaped, but all you got in the movie was there was a tiger. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and it was a lot. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a long movie. It wasn't a short movie. I think it was like two hours, the movie. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I quite, I enjoyed watching it. It was, I really did enjoy the movie. It was, it was an easy watch for considering the context, if that makes sense. Well, I would say I enjoyed the second half of the book. So I think if that's what they did with the, the first, with the movie was kind of cut out a lot of that. I just felt like, like maybe we could have gotten to that point a little sooner or in a slightly different manner. I don't know. It was just a couple hundred pages too long for my personal liking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they literally started with Lila coming in and saying Savannah was ill and he had to go. There was mm. nothing really before that. So they, they got right into it. Greyhounds. If you're enjoying our podcast, we'd be delighted if you could give us a review and follow or subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Back to the podcast. All right, Amaya. Yeah, I should probably introduce you. I should probably do that. I was just in a dream world. Okay, so that's me. And I don't know, I'd look down at my notes. There's only one person left to go and I still automatically look down at my notes. It's Marita. Who could it be? Who's next? (laughs) I'm going to meander a little bit because I had thoughts coming from a a few different directions, but I'm going to start off and kind of recapitulate some things that both you and Andrea said. And I am actually so excited that you and I keyed in on one of the same papers because I too pulled the the Where Parallel Lives Meet, Edward... Now I'm gonna fuck it up. Okay. Now I just have to point out that I've spent this entire time asking Marita to help me pronounce it. And now that she's done that, I've made it disappear out of her head, and she can't pronounce it. Well, the thing is, is I was when I was typing up my notes, actually kind of laughing because I was like, "There's no way Michaela would ever pick this paper because it has the word parallel in the title." <laughs> I was actually thinking how proud I was of you for saying it. <laughs> I think you've gotten me over the hurdle. As long as I don't think about it, I can see it. If I think about it, it's not happening. All right. So it's a book chapter. It's called Where Parallel Lives Meet, and it's by Edward Podsiadlik, who is a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, He works, uh, he has both been a public school teacher and admin, and now he works with um, pre-service public school teachers. And everything I've seen from him online seems like really a a great person. I certainly am going to revisit this entire book um, because of its approach to sort of how you see yourself and, and, and how you, how much of your personal life ends up affecting how you are as a professional and as a teacher. This this book does have an entire chapter on the Prince of Tides. I'm also going to quote from it. Um, so I'm going to take a slightly different angle than what Michaela had. And I'll start off with a quote from the chapter. And that's, Tom lives two separate lives, a public one as a professional teacher and family man, and a private one as a survivor of childhood trauma. 
He has secured his grief and emotional duress within what Adam Phillips calls a forgetting museum. And he sets out in effect to live parallel lives, an inner and an outer one. To the outside world, Tom is a well-liked teacher with a loving wife and two daughters. Inwardly, however, the memories of childhood trauma remain unattended. And the chapter effectively argues that no matter how much we want to separate the aspects of our identity, in this case, public versus private lives, they're always inextricably linked because one informs the other, and that honest self-reflection informs the professional life and is crucial to realistically finding what Parker Palmer has called the personhood from which good teaching comes. And the way I want to approach this is that that doesn't just apply to teaching, because in this context, it's coaching. You know, Tom Wingo is both a teacher and a coach. I don't think you can separate those either. But Ted is also very much a teacher as he is a coach. Right. So we have Tom who very much tries to keep the strands of his life separate, but finds the grief in his private life is encroaching on both his family and his teaching life. And it absolutely is the same with Ted. He's trying to separate his personal pain from his family and his work life. And that is not addressing that pain, as Michaela has talked about, is, is really harming his ability in, in the other strand of his life to either be an effective family member, a good husband, a good father, and also a good coach. I think there's very much a parallel with with Tom. If if you look at what Savannah tells Tom about teaching when he's about to embark on her career, this is a quote from the book. Teach them this, Tom, and teach them very well. Teach them the quiet verbs of kindness to live beyond themselves. Urge them towards excellence. Drive them towards gentleness. Pull them deep into yourself. Pull them upward toward manhood, but softly, like an angel arranging clouds. Let your spirit move through them softly as your spirit moves through me. I mean, that's you know, Conroy's writing. I, I realize that the book is long, but it's lyrical. I love his writing. I mean, that's that's just some gorgeous stuff. But what Savannah said about Tom could just as easily be said about Ted. And what makes him great as a coach is, is is not his skills and strategy or tactics, right? It is his ability to re build relationships with people. That actually the lack of the ability to do that is why I will continue to argue that the current incarnation of Nate is going to be very, very limited as a coach. Um, but back to Ted, as much as he's trying to separate this, his marriage and his career are taking hits because he's trying too hard to bury that unresolved grief and not address it. And it keeps slipping out into his public and professional life. So in the book... Uh, when things really start to pop out for Tom, when he really sort of goes off the rails, is actually when he's teaching. And specifically, he reads a poem called Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas to his students. And Fern Hill, it, it's, I, I love Dylan Thomas, it's a gorgeous poem, and it just describes effectively the innocence of childhood on the farm that he experienced before he was really aware of death. And the poem ends with that awareness sort of encroaching in. And that deeply felt grief that Tom has at his loss of innocence breaks through from one life to the other when he reads this poem in class, right? That's when he kind of loses it. And interestingly, when things really start to sort of go off the rails for Ted is when he's coaching, right? When he's starting to have his panic attacks really manifest. You could argue that there's that combination of the pressure to be sort of the man of the house and protect the people he cares about, in this case, the people on his team, and not let anything past him. And when all of those kind of come together in a high pressure situation is when his panic starts to bleed through. And his panic gets a lot worse when he's confronted in the um, No Weddings in a Funeral episode with the death of a father. And an interesting aside here that my brain sort of wandered off into is the question that you all can discuss if you want, is never going to give you up Ted's version of Fernhill. Hmm. Okay. That's Everyone interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, if, if you look at it lyrically with, uh, you know, I won't run around and desert you, all these themes of abandonment from people in Ted's life uh, that cause him panic. Uh, have a similar impact as 
the theme of loss of innocence has to Tom. So yeah, um, yep, I can I can see that right because Ted's always like in that moment he's like oh you know or before the funeral he says that it's not because of the funeral in and of itself that he had his panic attack, but then there's something about like that support for Rebecca in that moment where he sings the song back to her. And it's like, he understands sort of the message behind the lyrics in that song in a way that like the average person just thinks, Oh, I'm being Rick rolled or whatever. It's like, there's so much more to it for in that moment. Exactly. So the book chapter um, goes on to bring up examples in the text of how Conroy uses language to show this continual process of diminishment and then remembrance, recovery, and re-identification. So this process that Tom is going through of integrating the two strands of his life, uh, and he compares this to the title imagery in the novel. And there really is a lot of title imagery in the novel. There's a lot of navigation sort of imagery that I think all works together really nicely. I also think in Ted Lasso, we see the cycles with Ted too. Uh, we see this diminishment um, in how Michelle sort of rejects him essentially and leaves the marriage and how he's treated by fans and how he's treated by the press. We get remembrance, which is gradual with Ted and with resistance, right? We get aspects of recovery that in the breakthroughs that he has with Dr. Sharon, and we also get re-identification. And especially we've seen it so far in this season, right? Where Ted gets to the point where he calls bullshit on Michelle's relationship. I think that's super important where he can re-identify and re-establish himself. We see him stepping up and trying to build his understanding of strategy in this most recent episode in Amsterdam, where he's embracing the part of himself as a coach that is currently the weakest. And I think it's really important, just as Conroy used the title imagery, and it's not just continual movement forward, that Ted's character arc isn't just constant forward progress, but steps forward and cycles back, and it's a continual thing. So I'm going to go back and quote Podsialik again. And and say, the Prince of Tides reminds us that the inner truths that anchor our identities and values as individuals and as teachers need to be reflected on and revisited lest we lose sight of that which nourishes and supports the integrity of our work. Tom Wingo demonstrates that the rewards of working through grief lie in the potential to transform loss into meaningful personal and professional growth. Only by better understanding himself, his values and beliefs, and the experience that both challenged and sustained them was Tom able to remember, recover, and re-identify with his teacher's heart. Tom Wingo's story illustrates the highly personal nature of teaching, and I would add coaching into that. As William Ayers points out, greatness in teaching requires a serious encounter with autobiography. So Ted engaging with and recovering from what has hurt him allows him not only to reintegrate this two desperate lives excuse me, two disparate lives that he's living. So that's going to make him a happier person, but also essential to his effectiveness as a coach. Yeah. And I especially love that this theme isn't just applied to Ted's character arc as well. And I'm thinking specifically of Dr. Sharon when she says to him, I've learned that expressing my vulnerabilities can help my patients with theirs, right? She is constantly going through these cycles too, even as a therapist, and even though we don't get to see a lot of it. So that's where I went with that chapter, but there's a few other sort of various things I had. Um, and and one thing that I really loved, another paper that I found that I liked uh, very much that I want to touch on is called The Prince of Tides' Archetypal Hero Quest by P. Ellen Malfris, who's a professor at the University of South Carolina, Beaufort. Uh, she wrote this in the Southern Literary Journal, and she's also the deputy director, apparently, I looked this up, of the annual Pat Conroy Literary, Literary Festival that's held in Beaufort. So she's quite obviously an expert on Conroy's work. And that's a thing that exists. <laughs> Indeed. 
I never would have guessed, but I think that's, well, he's written you know, quite a bit. I think he's, he's really prolific, important to that area. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, she argues that Luke Wingo, the brother, right? Luke Wingo's story is an example of this type of hero's journey as described extensively by Joseph Campbell in The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And she makes a really compelling case for this. She has several corollaries between Luke's life history and Campbell's outlined sort of quest. Those are including, but definitely not limited to, the importance of a home and a homeland that has to be returned to, sort of these outsized mythological feats. I mean, some of the stuff that goes on in the book, right? Like stealing a porpoise from the equivalent of SeaWorld after drugging some dude, right? Like the... 40 mile water skiing quest with their grandpa. All Was of that these in are- the movie, Michaela? The 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 porpoise part? <laughs> She's no. like, what? <laughs> no, I was the only thing I could think about when you started saying that was are you talking about the boys? What am I there's a, there's a little scene in that? No, <laughs> luckily <laughs> the porpoise here has a much happier ending than the Thank God. <laughs> Although I think I'd probably rather fly out the window of a van than go with the deep anywhere, to be honest. I was like, if there's any part that was cut from the movie, I bet it was the porpoise stealing scene. There was not. There was no even a mention of it. The tiger at least got a mention. (laughs) Right. And so, like, yes, there's also the tiger. There are influence in his life, like the prototypical tyrant monster who is functionally Henry Wingo, the the father. Um, This sort of almost beatific protective figure figure in the grandfather of Amos Wingo. It goes on and on. It's a good article and it's definitely worth reading. And the comparisons are particularly germane because Sudeikis in interviews has likened Ted's story to the his story arc to Campbell's hero's journey, right? He said this specifically. Uh, he was referring, I think it was before season two started, so where we're going to be at at the start of season, season two. So these are definitely important parallels. Um, but also for that reason, because there's a whole lot more thoughts I have on Ted and the, the hero's quest, but I actually want to save that because I think we should do a whole episode on on the hero with a thousand faces. I think yeah, I think that is so germane to the entire way Ted Lasso is structured. I think we should well, do that. People are always making parallels with Star Wars, and Star Wars is exactly you know it, it is a the prototype. Of- absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> right. right? Oh, I so, the list. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, so I want to come back to that because this is a really excellent paper. I also wanted to throw something else out about Beard because there's imagery in the book. I mean, even though Ted is our hero's journey in Ted Lasso, we do get some of that from Beard and especially in Beard After Hours because he does go on that veritable odyssey, right, with really kind of mythological things happening. And in The Prince of Tides, we have the book sort of book ended by this rising of a giant moon right? It happens at the beginning when the, the kids think the mom has done that. And then they do that at the end with sort of this family re- reconciliation. And it very much made me think of the moon rising, um, the blue moon rising and beard after hours. Hmm. I also love that we have these mythological elements in Prince of Tides because we have the tiger and we have the porpoise. So we have this contrast between a ferocious, but still ultimately a little pathetic tiger, right? Because it's trapped, right? And how it deals with problems and this beautiful porpoise that's like this unique mystical being, but that is so innocent and reliant on others. Because then we have Ted Lasso, right? And we've got the lion and the panda question and how those approaches to life are reflected in the characters that see themselves as lions or pandas. Oh, that's (laughs) good. That is That's really good. Well done. 
Um, so something else I wanted to touch on, I just have a couple more things. I have a quote from the Prince of Tides, and this is about uh, the stepdad that they ended up with in Reese Newbery. And the quote is, my mother could not recognize that Reese Newbery had mastered the abstruse art of humiliation by kindness. Um, and so we have this character who is really a terrible, terrible person, but the way he uses money and hides private cruelty with public charm and generosity. And in fact, I would argue uses public charm and generosity to facilitate private cruelty is so reminiscent of Rupert's behavior, especially at the gala. And that kind of behavior is so insidious because Rupert shows up at the gala to hurt Rebecca, right? Mm -hmm. It's specifically to hurt her, but he's throwing around his money and a power in such a way that he knows she will be incredibly vulnerable to attack if she resists it in any way. She just has to welcome him in because otherwise she is ruining it for everyone else. And, and that is such a calculated, horrific, awful thing that he's doing, but he's also making himself look good in the process. He, he also reminded me of the, um, who was the old rich dude in It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, Yeah, Mr. Yeah. Potts. He reminded me of him. Certainly the, the movie, he reminded me of him a little bit. And, and it's hard because the way Conroy writes about Lila, it's so obvious to us that she's just sort of desperately clinging to power or this sort of status that she thinks she deserves. But it's, I think, worth considering how socialized people, especially women, are to be deferential and appreciative of strong male figures in a way that actually makes it harder to spot what's going on with that. How, And, and I think that's why it's so important in the gala episode that Ted said, you're not the only one who sees who he really is, right? Because she sees it, but it's obvious to her that a lot of people don't. Um, but it also explains why someone as impressive and wonderful as Rebecca could get lured in by him and why Lila can manage to make herself absolutely blind to what Newbury is doing. She, he does it to her kid when, when Tom is young, right? He does it as an adult when he marries her. What Rupert and people like this do, though, isn't limited to women, right? Rupert tries it with Ted until he sees that Ted is not nearly as harmless as he thinks he is, right? And Rupert is currently doing it to Nate with the gaslighting and treatment of Nate, who is incredibly susceptible to it because of the way Nate has been socialized. Oh, yeah. And so I have one more thought here, and this might be a little bit of me pulling the pin on a grenade and then running. <laughs> Why do I love Ooh, that image? Me too. <laughs> so in the book, and the book is sprawling, and I probably enjoyed it more than the rest of you, but it was a slog to get to the first part of it, but I appreciate the craft with which it was built in the way that it led to the payoff. I, 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 I liked the payoff at the end where everything ties together and you can see mm -hmm. the importance of stuff there yeah that's why i said i liked it as we got to the second half and i started seeing why things were relevant and why i should care and that's why i got through the whole thing because i wanted to wait until the whole story was told before i made my conclusions ted last fans. <laughs> so I i'm going to put another trigger warning here because i am going to talk about issues of coercion and rape because there is again that rape scene in the story with as sprawling as this book is, having any two scenes right next to each other is not coincidental or necessary, right? But what we have in the book is we have these juxtaposed ideas of consent and coercion that highlight different ways that power imbalance can manifest to sometimes very severely negatively affect people's life. And, and I want to be really clear as I talk about this, I am not equating anything else to be equivalent to rape. 
but there are different degrees of power usage and coercion that I think are worth considering. So in the book, we have this horrific rape scene. And in the process of being raped, Tom not only is undergoing that violation, but is forced at gunpoint to say that he is enjoying it. Right. It is this absolute farcical mockery of consent. And this scene very shortly that comes after that is when the town of Colleton is forcibly moved, right? Eminent domain is used by the federal government and they have to move everyone out of the town. And the entire approach taking to the population is you're doing this because you love America. Aren't you, aren't you loving this? And that juxtaposition of different ways where people's lives can be ruined by this coercion is really interesting to me. Uh, like I said, I am not a, equating anything else to rape but i i i don't think that juxtaposition was unintentional i don't think it was coincidental no i think i see what you mean yeah maybe that's part of why luke fought so hard oh in that absolutely. moment because he wasn't able to like there was only so much he was able to do in that scene because he showed up like as it was in progress slash after like Indeed. towards the tail end of it Okay, and so there's this extreme power differential there, right? One is the threat of extreme violence where someone could clearly kill you. The other is this overwhelming economic imbalance and governmental authority, but it it precludes consent. No matter how much someone wants to or is forced to say they're going along with it, it doesn't matter if they're consenting or not. Okay, so this is where <laughs> I'm going to send the discussion off of the rails uh, and probably make some people annoyed. So I think very much to society's credit, there are a significant number of people who are more educated now than in the 80s when this book was written, and certainly when the book was set about ideas of consent and what actually allows someone to positively, affirmatively, and enthusiastically consent to someone. People have a better understanding of power imbalances. And so I think this increased awareness that people have of this and what constitutes coercion and changing attitudes towards consent is contributing to a lot of the people who have uneasy feelings about some of the relationships in Ted Lasso. I am not criticizing the relationships in Ted Lasso. I, I want to be clear that even though I am picking this fight, I am not being like, this is wrong and this is wrong. But that does include the relationship with Rebecca and Sam, which no matter how how you are going to argue that there is a significant power differential there. It includes, I would say, more so Jack and Keeley, because I would argue that Jack is definitely throwing her money and power around in that relationship. And I would also argue that that's probably contributing to some of the unease that I have seen people express in Re Rebecca's interaction with the hot Dutchman. I am not condemning any of these relationships or interactions, but I think the way people have been reconceptualizing consent is causing people to sort of maybe be more willing to express what their misgivings are about the power power dynamics in, and the the coercion involved in those situations. And so now I have pulled the pin and I'm running away and I'm curious <laughs> if any of the rest of you have anything to say about that. I did because I saw one person come and that scene made me uneasy. Like I was on edge until the moment he put the blanket over her and then went into his own room. That was when I finally was like, okay, I, I, I feel comfortable that like nothing wrong is going to happen here. But I saw someone equate it to, um, baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> mm, it did have that feel. I mean, right? like he kept saying, like, you clothes. can go, you can do, you know, like, go ahead. It's, it's fine. It's like, go ahead. Here's a bag of your wet clothes. Go ahead. And it's like, what is she going to say? No. Okay. Yeah. Let me take my wet clothes and go. Or like, you know, yeah, I'm going to stand here and have tired feet and 
be sober like well you know well, like- <laughs> i'm you know you threw the you threw the i i i don't disagree with anything you said the only thing i'll say is you know he did do a lot of things to make her more comfortable like he's like i you're showering in a man's home you don't know i left like, no, I yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. Like he did things, and he even was like at one point, he's like, "Okay, stop drinking." And then, like, he was saying, "Like the night is over. We've eaten. I like this is it. You yeah. can go." And she's the one that threw the water on her. You know, sure. I mean, no, for sure. Yeah. At, at that point, too, I think that was another moment where I was like, "Okay, she is comfortable with this situation, right?" I, there was definitely like a little bit of curiosity, a little, but. I think a lot of that, I fully admit that a lot of that was me projecting my own thoughts and experiences on that. Like, I don't think at any point that Rebecca lost control of that situation, right? Like that's, and I think maybe that's kind of what Marina might be getting at where she says I'm pulling the the grenade and, and, and running is that like, she she was okay with that situation. And when she wasn't, she expressed it, right? If someone had kissed my foot that I had just met, I would have kicked him in the face. Well, yeah. That, but that's me, right? That would have been a <laughs> reflex for me. I would have seen it. <laughs> At the very least. But, you know, there was, like, again, I knew it was Ted Lasso, so I knew it would be okay. I knew it wasn't real life, so I knew it yeah. would be okay. I knew that like rape culture isn't a part of the the context of Ted Lasso, so it would be okay. But except Jamie. Yes. Another thing because because Jamie's gonna come back up. I just I, I would think it has to because I don't think Jamie has ever really considered what, what consent meant in that situation. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. no, that's an excellent, excellent And I don't think Ted Lasso is the type of show to use a sexual assault as a plot or punchline to move no. you know to move to move the story well, forward or to have a laugh at. I think I think it will come back up. And like we said in our uh, Colin in our Colin stuff, right? Like a do a guy having sex like right like his response was like well of course she liked it you know and it's just like dude that's not like right but it was such the guy comment to make it's a defense mechanism right that's the defense mechanism. Yeah. it's something he's internalized right i mean I, well I don't it's know. it's also something that his the the version of manhood that his father passed down to him doesn't even allow him to conceptualize whether or not it was something he wanted there is no there because it's never a consideration that's interesting and 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 that's like you know i talked about trauma and the mothers but when you think about tom in that scene and that like idea of what it is to be like the man like i was supposed to save them etc etc like that that can connect very much to jamie even though we didn't delve into that too deeply but yeah and and beyond that you know with with tom in that scene you know the mother insists they never speak about it to anyone but she doesn't deny well she does to some extent but there's an acknowledgement of what happened to her and her daughter and then an absolute denial that it was even possible for a rape to happen to tom that comes up in the movie as well. And I was like, well, that must make it... Oh, I don't want to say even harder because there is no comparative tr- to right. trauma. We're not in a just like, hard, hard we're not in a competition. to no. process it. Yeah, right. because he, right. was get, he was getting told it wasn't even possible for that to happen. You know, and it's like, oh, God. Well, there's so much gaslighting at this point. 
It really is, yeah. Well, the movie, the movie and the notes that I read, yeah. Yeah. Awful lot. Anyway, so that's that's me. I've just ended things on a high note. Sorry. <laughs> I think we all jumped on that grenade to save each other. We're fine. Well, I'm, I'm just going to say one more time that we've said a million times. I'm just going to repeat myself. It'd be nice to see some more modern books that can tell us this same story with less complication. They exist. We read them every day. Yeah. I wonder what book was on uh, Trent Crim's tray table on the bus. If anybody I was could work figure on that, that out, <laughs> if anyone could figure that out, let us know. Or if Marita discovers it, I was like, I, I couldn't yeah. tell on my TV, but yeah, I'm gonna check it out too. I really, once again, enjoyed everybody's parts on that. It was fantastic. And Andrea, you know what we're doing next? Yes, I do. Our first book from season three. Uh, The first book from season three, which is The Miracle of Castel de Sangro, A Tale of Passion and Something by Joe McGinnis. The love of a passion. (laughs) Passion and something. (laughs) Something. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. You know, I have to say I've read about half the book already and it's passion and boy, a a fair few other something. So we're going to have fun. I, I, it's a fun book. I got it. I've got the book. I'm ready to start it. Awesome. And I hope this one doesn't make Italians look bad. (laughs) It makes everybody look bad. Absolutely everyone. (laughs) Well, this is equal opportunity then. Indeed. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you all for joining us. And I can't wait to get started on the next book. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. 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 Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review.